Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome. I'm Bishop Heather Shea here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. And you're going to be listening to the best of open heart conversation 2021. This has been a great year. You may have seen some of our programs from shadow to shamanism, course in miracles to the way of the monk. And with some of our special guests like Marianne Williamson, Sharon Salzberg, Carolyn Miss, Jean Houston. And of course, I've been here with my co-host, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman and Reverend Renee Rossi. Thanks for joining. In Jainism, how do you reference God or the divine spirit? God, the creator, doesn't exist in Jainism. We are the first atheists of the world. We do not believe in God as a creator. God as a perfect soul, God as a person who has shed all his karmas, God as a person who is in the state of constant bliss, lives in Siddhashila, and is energized with the positivity of the soul, that perfect soul, that perfect God, yes, we do believe in him. We revert to him. We want to be like him. And we can become like him. Hence, we do not believe that God is outside of us, that some third entity, it is within us. That's why Jains also start with saying Jai Janendra, which basically is praying to the Lord in you because one day you can become that Jinnah. So we pray to the Jinnah in you and we bow down to the Jinnah in you because one day you can become God yourself. And I pray to that God that is within you. What is the philosophy on the purpose of life? And do people have souls? Life is nothing but the soul. Everything that is not the soul is what we call samsar or this earth, this being. Our body is not ours too. We will leave this body and the soul will move away. So the Jain philosophy of life is that it is given, right? It will exist. You are in this mundane existence of life and death and life and death. You will feel the pleasure, the pains. You will have emotions. You will get angry at people. You would be uh, annoyed. You would love somebody. All these feelings and everything will create you to always have bondage of karmas. And you're carrying this bondage of karmas from one life form to another. They will fruit themselves in different shapes and forms. Good karmas will give you good times. Bad karmas will give you bad times. And there is this constant cycle of this. And Jainism in its philosophy says to break away from that continuum of life and death and life and death and break away from it and get to nirvana or moksha where you're in constant bliss, constant happiness. 
you don't have pleasure and pains and you live there for life and you became a supreme soul. And that is the purpose of life that you get to that supreme soul status because everything else is momentary. You may enjoy a moment right now. You may like your first piece of chocolate when you get it. But if someone gives you and forces you to eat 100 pieces of chocolate, the 100 piece is like you want to throw up, right? So whatever is pleasure also turns into pain. And hence, there is nothing good about all this. It is all transitionary and you need to get out of this and get into a state of constant bliss. And that is moksha. Who or what is communicating to us? If, if, if there is a communication that's taking place in the dream, who or what is speaking to us? I, I just love that question. It almost brings tears to my eyes because I think that is the major question. And it just literally, I'm almost going to cry here because I think that really touches the core of what we're investigating. And I, I so I will just say what my sense is right now. I think it's mystery, you know, and it's like that it's such a big mystery. And my sense is that it is that we're all one thing. Like I just heard somebody say on a uh, beautiful documentary I watched the other day, there's really only one mind on this planet. That's it. We're all part of it. It's one thing. So I would say that one mind that we are all part of, we are aware of that's speaking to us in our dreams, the way that you and I are connected, though we've never met in the flesh yet until today, you know, there's a way that we've known each other forever and will know each other forever. And that's what we're connecting into. I feel like there are beings myself. I have this sense that there are ancestors and um, um, helpers that we all, that kind of watch over all of us and that track us and, and actually have in their mind this is what Taria needs to know today. So I'm going to give her an image for that because it will help her in the conversation she's going to have this afternoon that she doesn't even know that she needs that. Um, so I feel like I always feel like there's an overdwelling mind that is prescient that actually knows what I'm going to need later in the day or the week or the month. And so it's, it's offering something to me. And that to me feels like an individual kind of spirit could be an ancestor to me, I have a, a, a personal devotion to uh, Mary, mother of Jesus, and Jesus uh, himself. They're very dear to my heart, and I often feel like it's their mind that it's guiding and directing me because I apply to them at all times through my prayer and love and intention. I feel like it is returned through their mind sort of helping me, but everybody has their own sort of sense of who's helping them and and. But so, as you can see, you know, it's like, who is that that's talking to us? It's all of it. It's all of it. And there are very particular voices as well, I think. And often people know this was my grandmother who came in and said, I have one client whose grandmother is always there in her dreams telling her exactly what she doesn't want to hear but exactly needs to hear and her grandmother who she respects and adores she can take it from her where she couldn't take it from somebody else um so you know our loved ones um from all dimensions are able to get through to us in our dreams 
as well as you know all the that invisible realm of of spirit uh, and nature itself. Um, You're speaking about opening up the heart. Talk a little bit more about the the miracle of of love and accepting love's presence and the awakening of love's presence. <clears throat> the Course in Miracles says a miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. So. And, and that love is the mind of God. And that think of it as though the universe is self-organizing. The acorn is already programmed to become an oak tree. The embryo is already programmed to become a baby. The bud is already programmed to become the blossom. The universe is already programmed to work. And similarly, you and I are programmed for life that works and that lifts us and all beings to the highest level of creativity and joy. The difference between us and the acorn is that we have free will. So we can say yes to love, but we can also say no and deflect the miracle. Love is the field of possibility out of which the next best thing will emerge. A denial of love is a deflection of the miracle. And every moment we are making the choice between the two. We, we might be making the choice consciously. We might be making the choice unconsciously, but every moment we're making the choice. The Course in Miracles says miracles are natural when they do not occur, uh, something has gone wrong. And what has gone wrong is that we switch from right-minded to wrong-minded thinking. Every thought though is that powerful. Every thought, the Course in Miracles says, creates form on some level that every thought takes us and those around us either straight to heaven or straight to hell. Heaven and hell not being a condition or a place, but heaven being an awareness of our oneness. So every thought either makes us more aware of our oneness or more deluded by the illusion of separation. The former gives peace and the latter gives pain. And that's what hell is. Hell is what the ego mind or the fear-based mind would want to do with every, every moment by guiding us into thoughts that lead us to separation. Either it's an attack thought, uh, a judgment, uh, whatever it would take to invalidate or minimize another human being, build a wall between you and another human being, including thinking you're superior to an, uh, superior to another human being or inferior to another human being. The ego is always tempting us into the thoughts that will build walls because the ego is the wall. That's what the body is. Whereas the spirit is always leading us to thoughts that extend beyond the body to the realization of the oneness wherein lies our peace. When I reflect on the question that, that Jean just asked you, it, it really hits me how, now I understand why you both call each other sister, because mythically speaking, I view you both as kind of modern day Moses, in the sense that you are both leading us to the promised land, and the promised land is, is really intimate. It's, 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 it's spaces within our own spirit, soul, and consciousness that we human beings need to explore in order to evolve. Um, and both of you have done that in your work. You lead us into the promised land of our own hearts. If that is indeed true, then if you were leading us into that space called the shadow, what, what truly 
what is the shadow? How does it originate? You know, walk us into that promised land of our own inner being. What is the shadow and how does it originate in us? Let's start with this. Before we get to the shadow, before we get there, let's start with this. Power is the fundamental ingredient of the human experience. Power. Everything is power. Everything. Everything we do is a negotiation of power. What we wear, how we think, what we eat. Is this going to empower me? Will it disempower me? If I'm diabetic, this cookie will disempower me. Every single thing. And so we start out by a relationship with tactile power. Is this pen powerful? Is it expensive? What, what has power? Our senses relate to power. Eventually, we begin to understand how emotional power works, belief power, what people believe. We begin to observe what people believe, what words have power. If I say this word to you, I watch you get disempowered. And that activates. As soon as our appetites are activated, our shadows activated. As soon as our appetites, as soon as our cravings, as soon as we start wanting things, as soon as we start craving things, we activate. As soon as we start losing control of ourselves, which happens around in, in early in, in early on in our in our life. And as soon as we lose touch with our conscience, when we really lose touch with that inner metronome that says, don't, don't do this, don't do this, do this. And somewhere around age seven or eight, we're tested and we are tested as to whether or not we will stay in touch with that voice because everybody's wired to hear that voice early on. And when we lose touch with that, if we decide the hell with that voice, that's when we associate telling the truth with fear. That's when we enter a relationship with the dark, that's when the dark becomes our ally and truth becomes our enemy. That's when we start developing a rapport with lying is power, truth is dangerous. And I give you the world we have today. Dr. Hillman, what is it that you mean when you say, as above, so below? <laughs> That's an old, old saying. Um, that's been around for thousands of years and essentially means that we are not separate from the sky. We are not separate from anything for that matter. And that the planets are within us and we are within the universe. And so we are intertwined. And so the notion of that line is that what is happening above us at any given time is also happening within us at any given time. There is a correlation between what's in the heavens and what's in a human psyche or human soul or in, in your mind, if you want. And that is, um, they, are, they are correlated through these universal principles. And there is no way of measuring that. It's not about a magnetic field or something like that. It is about the non-separation, the idea that what is above is happening at the same time, synchronistically, on Earth. And so if we read one system, we read the planets, we're also reading what's happening on the Earth. They are interconnected and always have been. You said that in 
archetypal astrology, light is not necessarily good or darkness bad, right? That's kind of not, not the perspective here. So if that's the case, then my question to you is, if I'm supposed to be cultivating the light within me, what is that? What is the light within me? Is it my passion? Is it my vision? Is it, what is the light within me? I think it's different for every person. I think it's, a, I would think of the light as a spark. It is, it is, so that would mean, yes, it is passion. So for some people it's like, you know, I've always wanted to do this, but I've never really stepped into and doing that. That could be the light, um, you know, dare. But it's also about, there's a certain amount of rationality that goes with this, a certain amount of clarity. Light is about clarity and about seeing, shining light on something. And so, you know, shining light on our, on our inner darkness, shining light on our inner, on our feelings, speaking about our feelings, getting clarity on how we feel about things or why we feel about things in certain ways and wondering why we do things the way we do things. So wondering about the stuff, even wondering about our imagination and then making our imagination seen to the world, which is creativity by definition. So this is, um, to me, what we can do is we can step forward and actually, um, you know, find whatever it is for us that needs to be sparked. So you could imagine you can close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting at a campfire and by yourself in the middle of nowhere and you and there are some embers in the in the uh, in, in the fire pit. They're almost out but they're still there. And if you sit quietly and meditate for a while, you might come up with some thoughts about what those embers are in your life and then ask yourself what you need to do to bring those embers back to a full, full, full flaming fire. That would be the, sort of the analogy. And they're different for everybody, but that's the activity. That's the to-do list, if you want. Dr. Hillman, you'll soon be speaking to us about light in darkness. Um, many, many spiritual traditions speak of light and darkness. Light is usually good. Darkness is usually bad. Okay. It seems to me that archetypal astrology may be having a, a rather different perspective than this. Tell us a little bit about how you speak of light and darkness. Yes, and that's a really important piece. So um, I like to think of the yin-yang symbol, which is a great simplification of the, the light and dark sort of metaphors. But the yin-yang symbol shows us is that in, an, in a balanced world, in an ideal balanced state, there's an equal amount of both present. And that if we have too much light or too much darkness, then the balance is upset and it's not, a, if you want, a perfect union of the two. And culturally, particularly the West has and Abrahamic traditions have picked light as being good and dark as being bad. Sort of heaven is light and hell is dark. Sort of very much simplified, but that's sort of the core idea. And the problem with that is that it's not balanced, that one does not exist without the other. And that um, we need to make sure that we understand that both halves are important all the time. So, so Dr. Hilmes, explain to us the, uh, yin and yang and what, and what that is. So, you know, when kids ask me what it means, I like to use a simple metaphor. I say, you know, yang is when we're all walking in a straight line. And um, we're going someplace, but all we can see is the rear end of the person in front of us, and kids get a kick out of that. So we're not connecting. Whereas yin is when we're all sitting in a circle, and everybody's connecting with everyone else, but we're not going anywhere. 
And so we really need both. Human beings want to connect. They also want to go places. And so we need to have a, a, both the yin and the yang well-developed within us. We need to both be proactive, going in directions, um, moving along, um, you know, having firmness, being assertive at times. We need all of that. And we also need to be receptive and full of imagination and just sit still and do nothing and let the universe speak to us in other more mystical ways. So we need both those capacities, and that's what the yin and yang very much simplified to me means. Again, I talked about um, Saturn um, and, and Pluto aligning this year and the difficulties that brought the deconstruction. Now that everything has been destroyed in so many ways, there is a, um, in, the, in the tradition of the phoenix, where you need the ashes to have something new to awaken, um, you have a moment of rebirth that's going on everywhere as well. And that I think is, is, a, is, a, is a critical part of, 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 of where we are. While the whole world overall you know, is reeling tremendously under COVID and all the consequences of that, planets as they go around the sun and as it appears from us as they go around the earth, because that's how we see them in a geocentric astrology, that's how we look at it. We, we imagine them going around us because that's what we see. Planets have an orbital period, how long it takes them to go from wherever they are in the sky right now to coming back to that place. So we recognize that the easiest, um, when we look at the moon, moon comes back you know, to full moon every 28 days or so. We also recognize that when we celebrate our birthdays, when we go, we, the, the sun comes back to the same place it was in the sky at the moment of our birth on our birthdays. We celebrate that. That's the solar return, if you want. Um, Pluto, the slowest and most mysterious and also most important and in my mind by far the most powerful of all planets, is um, and, and the best representation, if you want, of the yin energy. Now, you mentioned the Protestant Reformation. Obviously, the Lutheran tradition sits within this, this historical context. Tell us a little bit about what really were, what was the, the Protestant Reformation? Well, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've been to seminary, so I'll, I'll do my best. Um, I encourage everybody to, there's a great book by Dearman McCullough uh, that they can, called The Reformation, they can, they can read if they want to explore it more. But um, there's a couple of things that were happening uh, that, that, let, that the Protestant Reformation, um, uh, I think, kindled it. Uh, there had been movements way before um, Martin Luther of trying to get, for instance, scriptures into the hands of ordinary people to read in their own language. Um, in fact, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, uh, translated by Jerome, was, in, was one such method of getting the Bible into normal people's hands back when you know, the, the lingua franca was, was Latin. Uh, but over time, that kind of calcified, and, and, uh, and, and uh, over time, only scholars or, or monks or... Um, educated people could read or understand Latin. Um, and so they would end up going to church and have no idea really what was going on. Um, like for instance, the words hocus pocus uh, is sort of a corruption of the words hoc es corpus, which is like, this is the body of Christ. So, and, um, and all that stuff. So, um, so people would go and they, they would, they, there's wonder and awe, of course, but, um, and perhaps even accelerated by an inability, inability to understand what they were seeing. But also, you it ended up with priests who didn't know what they were doing because they would just read phonetically or, or mumble along and, and not really know. And, and then there's a whole lot of money that was being moved around. So, um, you know, the Pope was raising armies and building cathedrals and, and to do that, they had to fund it. So they started selling indulgences and all these other other things that they that they that they did. And um, 
And so the Protestant Reformation was trying a way to um, end what we thought were, uh, or what the people at the time thought were practices that weren't really Christian. And chief among those was trying to get scriptures and worship in the language of the people themselves. Um, that was one. A second was to um, allow communities themselves to sort of uh, be the, uh, the chief arbiters of, of who their priests were going to be, uh, to allow marriage of priests. Um, and there were, and also to think about sort of the sacramental structure of the church. And so all those things were kind of the main in some ways, main thrusts of the Protestant Reformation. And theologically, um, there was also the, the idea that um, we're not trying to earn our way to heaven by doing good works, that, that, that we cannot please God. Uh, and God isn't like a Santa Claus in the sky, sort of with a list marking off the things we did good, the things we didn't do well. And then if we just tip the balance, if we were 51% good, we get to go to heaven. If we're 51% bad, we have to go to hell forever. And that was kind of sort of what they were trying to, to work on. Um, and number two is you got to pray. You just got to pray. You pray. And there's no right or wrong way to pray. Um, so, so, so what is prayer? Uh, I always tell everybody, it's just, it's just, you just talk to God, you just talk to God and listen. Uh, and sometimes you won't hear anything for a long, long time. Uh, but you just open your mind and just talk, uh, whatever comes out, God, I'm mad at you today, or God help me understand, or God, I got to tell you, I did this bad thing. Or God, I'm really proud of myself today. Thank you for helping me out. You know, um, we, there's a little acronym I give my, uh, my confirmation or middle school students. It's the ACTS, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, meaning asking God for stuff. And that's, that's as good as we got. I mean, the, the Lord's Prayer, everybody in our, in our tradition should know and pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, we should know and contemplate the Apostles' Creed. Um, but there are a lot of, but like if you are not helped, for instance, by doing like a, a daily devotion in a book, don't do it. You know, if you're better off taking a walk and talking to God while you're walking, that's good. You know, our, our tradition is, 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 you know, what's, what's helpful for you that brings you closer to Jesus. And, and you know, the, the thing that I don't like to see is when someone starts telling me, I don't need to come to church because I, I get to be with God on my own. And I have to say that, that to me is a sign that I think that something's a little bit out of, out of kilter. I, I, I think that God wants us to be in, as a, at a family table, which is communion. Uh, you know, on Thanksgiving, you got to find the relatives that you haven't seen all year and may never see until next Thanksgiving, but you at least need to say hi and hug them and, and ask about their lives and understand, you know, and that's kind of like coming to church. There's always going to be that crazy lady in the back who's going to sneeze really loud or or who's gonna try to like give you an uncomfortable conversation at coffee hour afterwards. But that's part of the spiritual life of the church is all of God's children belong at this table. And who are, who are we to, to disinvite ourselves uh, from, that, from that spot? So. Hi, this is Bishop Shea at United Palace of Spiritual Arts. And this is the best open heart conversations 2021. Thank you for joining. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. We now return to the best of Open Heart Conversations 2021. So Sharon, how does one meditate properly or correctly? 
Uh, I mean, people have a lot of ideas. I certainly had a lot of ideas about what good meditation looked like. And very often they're not that accurate. You know, um, for example, people will often say, well, I'm not a good meditator because I can't stop thinking. You know, I, I can't make my mind blank. But we don't believe that's the purpose of meditation. It's more to change our relationship to our thoughts than to annihilate our thoughts. But most people have that other idea. And so they're continually thinking of themselves as having failed. But you can't fail. It's not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening and trying to bring as much awareness and balance and kindness to every moment of our experience, whatever, whatever may be going on. And so in that light, you're not going to fail. Maybe it's sleepiness. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's a rush of thoughts. Maybe it's a rush of negative thoughts. None of that's considered bad meditation, depending on how we're working with it. So here's one example. I often talk about sitting with my own fear. Um, this would be an example of mindfulness. Usually when we have a strong emotion, we're fascinated or even fixated on the circumstance, the story, you know, the external uh, process. We very rarely kind of pivot our attention and say to ourselves, what does fear feel like? You know, what does anger feel like? What does joy feel like? And that's what we do in meditation. So if I sit with fear in that way and I do that pivot, it's like, what does it feel like in my body? And then I, got, I get to watch the fear movie. So that means I look for add-ons. You know, this is the only thing I'll ever feel. I'm the only one in the world who ever feels this. What's this going to be like tomorrow? It'll be even worse, right? And see if I can relinquish the add-ons and just be with the feeling. And then I can see more deeply into it. And an insight I've had on a personal level is that unlike the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, which of course is also true. I'm really afraid when I think I do know, and it's going to be really bad. And it's all the stories that I tell myself, well, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. When I get back to New York, I'm going to turn on the faucet. I'll get Legionnaire's disease. And it's just like, you know, that's when I get really afraid. And that was an important insight because certainly that happens even when I'm not meditating. And if I can see even the beginning of that arc of anxiety, then I can say, you don't know. And then I feel space, you know, so we use attention to be less cluttered, to be more gathered, more present and more interested in our experience so that so that we learn all the time. I think that one of the most beautiful things I've seen in this period is kindness uh, from people like um, my friends in New York would say something like, um, I've lived in this building for, in this apartment for 12 years. I never even knew my neighbor's names. Now I know everyone's name. We all know one another's names. We have one another's phone numbers. We're looking out for one another. Or way in the beginning uh, in March, I was in New York City. Um, and I was teaching somewhere and people were very anxious. It was very unclear how to behave, how to, how to be safe. Um, what to do. And I was teaching in a place where uh, the system is that the speaker sits in the audience until they're introduced. And then they get up on stage. So sitting in the audience and the person sitting next to me was phenomenally anxious. 
And so I said, well, you know, if you center your attention on the breath and uh, it will often kind of calm your whole nervous system and help you relax. So she wasn't interested. So I said, well, you know, if you do loving kindness meditation, then you'll have a sense of expansiveness and uh, it, it might really help. She wasn't interested in that either. So I just looked at her and I said, is there anyone you can help? And she lit up. She became really radiant. She said, you know, I do have this elderly neighbor who, uh, maybe I'll slip a note under her door and see if I can go shopping for her or something like that. And she was like so different with that thought. And I've just seen that again and again, the power of that. And uh, even if it seems like really small, you know, to do it. And so I think as terrible as things are, and people are tired, you know, this has gone on for a long, long time. Like when I'm teaching on Zoom, I read those chats, you know, and I read the teachers who say, my kids aren't learning, I feel desperate, or, you know, whoever it might be. Um, and yet, in, in as terrible and exhausting and grievous as it has been, there are these these glimmers of a way forward, which I think really is embodied in that kind of kindness. Barbara, why would it be valuable for our viewers and listeners to understand what a ritual is? First of all, to me, ritual is such an ancient spiritual tool. And today, based on all the neuroscience and all the science that we know, to me, it's really kind of like the spiritual tech of this century, to be honest. Ritual has the power to literally shift our consciousness. And when done with clear intention, it really brings you into your heart center, which as I know you all know, the key to living a spiritual life is truly to be coming from your heart and let your head kind of take over after. So the heart guides and then the head comes in and gives you the structure and helps you manifest. And in that way, we have more resource to become connected to other people. It's a way of honoring where we are, honoring where we've been, and honoring where we're going. So that's kind of the short answer. I could talk for hours, and I'm sure we'll do more as we go along. The difference between ritual and routine, then, is intention and state of consciousness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Almost anything can become a ritual if it is conscious. So, I mean, people laugh at me all the time because they know, you know, every time I see a bridge, like I'm walking in Central Park and I'm walking over a bridge, for me, okay, opportunity to let go of the old. And when I get to the other side of the bridge, I'm lighter. You know, I mean, that's just how my mind thinks at this moment. But, you know, you can turn walking over a bridge into a ritual of moving into the future. Hmm. And I don't mean to make light of it, but I think sometimes we get too heavy about it. And that's what stops people. Um, some of the best rituals I've ever learned about came from little kids. And they certainly didn't study it in a book. You know, one little boy, for example, um, five years old, and uh, the nephew of a son of, of a friend of mine called me. She calls me up and she goes, you know, my nephew called me up and he wants us to come over. And he used the word. He said, I want to do a ritual for my father. His mother... Um, when his mother gave birth to him, his father died. So he never met his father. And here's a five-year-old telling his aunts to come over and let's do a ritual. His mother is not religious, doesn't even talk about rituals, 
I have no idea where he even got the idea. He asked them all to come over, and he wanted, as he said in his words, remember, five years old, he wanted his father to be proud of him. So he brought out everything that was important to him, his baseball cards, a hat he had. He played a song on the piano. He asked them to light a candle because he wasn't old enough. And he then wanted them to share stories about his father. He did this ritual till he went through law school. That's how important it was to him. And he created it at five. One year he asked people to bring his father's favorite junk food. He wanted to know what candy his dad liked. You know, it was his way of connecting to the ancestors, if we really look at it. It was an ancestor ritual created by a five-year-old. We hear about the term Wicca, and you kind of mentioned there's some interest in how to define it. What is, what is Wicca? What, is that, what does that really mean, and where did it come from? So Wicca is an um, earth-based tradition. It's a nature religion, and it's a reconstruction. Uh, Wicca is pagan. Uh, Neo-pagan is the correct term. And, and pagans are um, modern people who, have, who embrace pre-Christian religions. Like you said, it's uh, very much based in the northern hemisphere. Most of the traditions, uh, Celtic tradition, a lot of the Teutonic faiths, um, and I, I really think the most important aspects of Wicca that are attractive to most people are um, the idea of, first of all, your connection to nature. Um, and nature being is basically the goddess, is, is the idea of the feminine face of God. And um, the the people of, of before before Christianity happened, there were indigenous people everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was at the Parliament of World Religions last last year and we were there together, right. um, I listened to a man. His name was Blair Stonechild. He was an indigenous man from uh, First Nations in Canada, and he gave a lecture on um, the indigenous traditions of the Americas and his people. And he coined a phrase, either, either coined it or I learned it from him, and he said, the people, the indigenous people of the planet all received the original instructions from creator. That's what they believe. And to me, that really says why it's so important, why so many people are attracted to pagan tradition, because it is basically reverence for the earth, reverence for nature, and your connection to your ancestors. And that's basically what Wicca is. It's, it's, an, it's getting back in touch with an ancestral link that basically the years and years of patriarchal religion and Christianity and other traditions kind of buried that and they buried it in a lot of harsh ways. Reverence for the earth and understanding of that interconnectedness that we are not separate from nature. We are not outside of nature. The creator didn't give us this to exploit. We cannot, we are nothing without Mother Earth. All right. And, and once again, to connect it back to indigenous tradition here, the concept of Mother Earth being mother to us all, giving us everything. We can't breathe all of the elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Those basic elements of life are within us, and we wouldn't be here without them. Would so, it, oh. In your own words, mm-hmm. what is Sufism? Uh, Sufism is the path of surrender um, and it's surrendering, <clears throat> excuse me, it's surrendering to ultimate reality, God, um, 
whatever name you put on that, it's the um, dissolving of the limited self of the dominance of the emotional um, and mental aspects of ourselves, the physical aspects, and um, um, submerging into reality as deeply as possible. You know, the, the idea is that, you know, ultimately um, is, is uh, Sheikh Noor, one of our great teachers, Lex Hickson, um, once said, um, you know, there was a time when everyone talked about reality as being energy, but it's really consciousness is what he would say, that ultimately um, all that exists is consciousness. And its ultimate reality or that consciousness is something transcendent of the mental function of, of the, you know, we, we think of consciousness as I'm awake, I'm alert, um, I have a cognizant experience of the world around me. But um, in a certain sense, that's limited. It's what in Sufism we'll refer to as the limited self, which is not a negative view of the self, but the awareness that um, my physical needs and desires, my emotional life, my intellect, all these things are um, part of that ultimate consciousness, but they're not the complete ultimate consciousness. And that, um, when exploring consciousness on a mystical path, it is trying to transcend the filter of our own perceptual and cognitive limitations of reality and experiencing what is. Um, so in a sense, that that to me is is the consciousness I'm, I'm referring to as far as mysticism. It's my understanding uh, that, that, that the real core of Sufi practice is... Um, is the search for a deeper union or realization of the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, as one person said to me, I seek direct personal experience of God. Mm -hmm. If that is indeed true, then um, explain to us what, what is your concept of God and what has been your experience of this union as you as you practiced? Thank you. Um, you know, I can't really say what my concept of God is because I've tried hard for years to not have one. <laughs> um, if, in a certain sense, um, a big part of the, of, of the mystical journey is um, finding the limitations that we project onto God by having conscious or unconscious concepts. And... Um, I'll just share a personal experience I had many years ago. Um, I didn't want to do my practices. I'd get up every morning and I'd be, I don't want to do these anymore, but I'm supposed to do them, so I'll do them. And I would do them. And then one morning I woke up and I thought, you know, I don't feel like doing them and um, I'm just not going to. And I started feeling this panic come over me. And I went, what is going on? And I kind of went in and I felt this, when I, when I tried to find what I was experiencing, what I felt was, well, if I don't do my practices, God will be upset and something bad might happen. <laughs> and I started laughing. I had, if you would asked me if I believed that, I would have said, of course not, it's ridiculous. But there was some part of my unconscious 
that had that belief still floating, this, you know, this concept of the anthropomorphic deity that's the great dysfunctional parent in the sky, you know, that, that loves you until you do something it doesn't like. And I just started laughing and then suddenly I wanted to do my practices again. And I feel like there was this inner battle I wasn't conscious of, of like a little kid, like, you can't tell me when to go to bed. You know, there was that kind of a thing going on. Um, so those are the, you know, all these concepts just, in, I mean, they're useful at a certain point. They give us something tangible to sort of direct our energy, but then ultimately they become a limitation. Um, as far as my experience of God, uh, I could try to talk about that. Um, you know, I, I have found the longer I've been on the path, the more ordinary life seems, and at the same time, the more amazing life seems. Um, you know, I think there are times when we need a lot of stimulation or, or have experiences to let us know something is going on. Um, you know, in any spiritual community I've, I've been involved with or know about, you know, you'll have, you'll have people within that community with different temperaments. You'll have some people that are incredibly visionary and they're always having, you know, visions and signs or, you know, guidance from different sources that they could verbalize or whatever. And often when someone like that expresses what they're feeling, if you look around the room, you see a few people with this look on their face. Well, I guess I must not be with the program. None of that stuff happens to me. You know, it's a very common thing. And I believe the reason is some people need certain kinds of experiences to get it and some don't. Um, you know, uh, it could be that, you know, from whatever someone's psychological makeup, experience, whatever, um, they need a more obvious message to, to break through where for someone else, um, it's like the old analogy of, you know, the, the goldfish doesn't know it's in a bowl. <laughs> it's just swimming around or the, you know, the, the fish in the ocean doesn't know about the ocean. Um, it becomes so ordinary. So I would really say the experience of God is ultimately um, um, noticing over time a deeper immersion into reality. Um, in my very, one of my very first communications with Sheikh Noor, my first teacher in our lineage, he sent me a letter and he said, remember, we're not doing these practices to go anywhere else. So the idea that we're, we're never leaving the human condition, um, but if anything, we're, we're seeing or being the interconnectedness of everything. So when you start getting down to um, religious laws, like it said, one of the things is in every religion, you'll have the level of the law and the rules. And on the mystical path, there might be stages where um, instead of being codified concretely, those same laws exist, but they become a breathing reality. Um, you know, Father Thomas Keating, you know, taught the centering prayer, beautiful man. I remember in one of his books, he um, 
wrote about someone he knew who was a, you know, um, a, a priest or a bishop or something. I can't remember. But he had been an atheist for many years. And when he had his um, experience, his conversion experience, he realized that the reason he became an atheist was when he was a little boy, the housekeeper caught him stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and said, oh, you shouldn't steal. It's a sin and you'll go to hell. And unconsciously, this man felt, well, I don't want anything to do with a God that would send a kid to hell for stealing a cookie. And after his conversion experience, the same man said, now I realize that if Jesus had walked in and saw me stealing the cookie, he would have said, you know, you shouldn't take a cookie if your mother told you not to, but as long as you're going to get in trouble, take two, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that's a sign of how that works, the experience of God, where you realize that the love and mercy overrides everything. The tenderness overrides everything. The compassion overrides everything. And, and that in no way is separate from the ordinary human experience. You know, even the moments when, when anyone fails, I mean, again, it's like any mistake we make, on a certain level, we made a decision consciously or unconsciously and we're responsible, but ultimately everything we do is animated by the divine. You know, there, there's no escaping it. And um, I think over time, we just become more comfortable swimming downstream instead of upstream against the current. Brother Paul, can you define for us what is a monk and what are we talking about when we speak of monastic life? Well, you know, the, the word monk comes from Greek uh, monos, uh, one or alone. So a monk is somebody who lives in solitude, uh, one form or another. And uh, when it comes to Cistercians, we certainly um, take solitude as primary in our observance, but we live our solitude in community. So we have, you know, a practice of silence. Uh, we also have communication. So uh, silence and prayer and work are the, uh, you know, almost like the defining uh, um, qualities of uh, a monk's life. So, so would you say that is the objective of a monastic life, the silence and prayer and community? Well, the, the objective of, of the, the monk's life is to um, live close to God. At least that's why I came to the monastery, uh, to live uh, in union with God as far as possible in this world, and to, to seek God. Uh, one of the qualities of uh, the rule of St. Benedict, one of the qualities of somebody applying to the monastery is the question, does he really seek God? So if you're not really seeking God, you're not qualified for the monastic life. Can you tell me as a lay person, as a lay person, um, uh, how do you see the monk's life differing from other forms of religious life and expression? Well, Brother Paul talked about the life of prayer and Cistercians, for example, Trappists don't go out, they don't teach. They don't run hospitals as many religious orders does. I mean, their life is totally dedicated to prayer and seeking God alone. 
if you go to Brother Paul's monastery and you go into the first entrance way, there's an archway and over it is etched God alone. And I think that says exactly what the monastic life is all about. Uh, so that makes it different that they're not they're not necessarily out in the world, which doesn't mean that they're set that they're they're uninterested in the world. They're very interested in the world. In fact, um, you know, when you go there, one of the first things you think about or I thought about is that the prayers of these monks and these sisters who live in monastic community are what must be holding our world together. Um, somebody's kind of be praying for us and holding this crazy tumultuous world together. And uh, I think the, uh, we, we owe a debt of gratitude to the monks and monastic sisters. What is it that you're speaking of when you say God? What is, what is, what is God to you? Well, he, he's, he's the undefinable. Um, he's, he's, he's sort of the, the mystery I move within. Uh, I, I move in, well, almost more like moving in and out of, because you don't always have necessary have, uh, you know, a, a thought about God or um, an experience of God, but uh, you have something of an implicit presence of God all the time. And then sometimes, you know, it can move into uh, something of a more positive experience of God um, through prayer or, or, you know, just the silence, the quality of silence that might come upon you in the midst of a meditation is, as it were, a, um, a touch of God. Thank you for joining. You've been listening to Open Heart Conversations, the best of from this year, 2021. Please continue to join us next year or come visit us here in Manhattan. See you next time. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.